Good morning. In today's gospel reading, we once again meet up with Jesus on the road. He and his friends are traveling to Jerusalem. He apparently had quite a following by this time. Uh, in fact, Luke says that the people had gathered in thousands, and it was such a huge crowd that they trampled on one another. They must have wanted to see what this renegade rabbi was going to do next and hear what he had to say. Following Jesus, we've come a long ways. We've moved from that beautiful, miraculous birth story through his debut in his hometown temple where his hometown crowd wanted to throw him off of a cliff for his radical interpretation of their scripture. And we've heard of his baptism by John in the Jordan. We followed Jesus into the wilderness where he was tempted by the very things that still tempt us today, those seductions to inflate our own egos, personal power and glory, and he walked away from them. We followed him to Capernaum and all around Galilee, healing people, feeding them, and turning all of their expectations and common sense upside down, telling them that the poor, the hungry, the despised, those in deep sorrow, all those who the culture says are to be pitied and shunned and in effect thrown away are in fact the blessed ones. We saw him turn radiant on the mountaintop and then go back down the mountain to heal a child. And all along the way, he taught the people who had ears to listen about the good news. And he demonstrated every step of the way how to live the good news that everyone, everyone is a child of God, no exceptions. And he sometimes gently and sometimes rather fiercely encouraged them to live as if they too were children of a loving God. And more than that, actually, he urged them to live their lives in ways that demonstrated their own belovedness. And now we're on the way to Jerusalem. We're getting closer. We're a little over halfway through the story as Luke tells it. We're close to halfway through the season of Lent on our spiritual journey toward Jerusalem and toward the cross and beyond. And things have been moving pretty fast in our world and in Jesus' story. And it seems like it was just Christmas, and here we are closing in on Easter. And here is Jesus in the story closing in on Jerusalem. And here's where the plot of the story, um, as Luke tells it, takes a great pause. We don't really get a sense of it in the way the lectionary prescribes our bits and pieces of the reading of the story. But if, we're, but if we were reading Luke's story start to finish, we might be a little surprised by this middle section. After all the action, now for pages and in fact for chapters, not a lot happens plot-wise. 
And granted, Jesus keeps traveling. It seems he couldn't stay in one place for very long. But in this middle section of Luke, he spends most of his time and energy teaching. And he mostly teaches in parables. And I think that's because all the wisdom that he wanted to transmit to his people, all the really important wisdom, all the really mysterious wisdom could not be taught in any other way. Well, he could have tried to explain his message of the love and of the kingdom. He could have tried to explain it in argumentative, straightforward terms, and he knew that that wouldn't work. The people didn't need to be convinced. Their minds didn't have to be changed. He wanted to change their hearts. And so he told them stories, and he was a master storyteller. But what I love about his parables is that they leave so much to the imagination. He trusted his listeners enough to leave it up to them to take the parables on face value or to go deeper. I believe we are entrusted to do the same. So, imagine a man wealthy enough to own a vineyard, fortunate enough to be able to have someone else plant a fig tree for him in his vineyard, well-resourced enough to have a gardener. He comes strolling through the garden one day looking for fruit on the fig tree, and he finds none. Now, apparently, he's been keeping an eye on this lazy or perhaps deficient or perhaps just plain stubborn fig tree for three years and nothing. And in some ways, he must have been a patient man because after all, three years? But his patience had finally run out, so he calls the hired help over and he says, well, he probably yells, cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? I think he probably went, why should it be wasting my soil? Of course, it was his vineyard, and he had every right to order it cut down. He could have even cut it down himself, but after all, he had a gardener. He was simply looking out for what he thought were his own best interests. Most of us do that. Most of the time. I can love this man. A little. But I absolutely love with all my heart the gardener for saying, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. I love him because he loves the fig tree. He loves that tree enough to give it his attention, to get right down in the dirt with it, to work for its good, for its very life, to get his hands dirty. And I especially love him for the manure. I grew up in Iowa, 
son of a father who was practicing organic gardening before it was a thing. And there was plenty of, we lived in town, but there was plenty of manure to be had around. You could walk out in the backyard in the afternoon and you knew that there was plenty of manure around. So, so he, he, he fetched some and he mulched it and he lovingly worked it into the soil around the tomato plants. And there's just something that I love about manure and about my dad and somehow those two things are, <laughs> are intertwined. And I love the gardener in the story for having the nerve to tell his boss, let it alone for one year and let me get to work. And I imagine that he did exactly what he said he was going to do. And I imagine that the next spring, a few blossoms opened and some fruit came on and set, maybe a little sparse that first year, but fruit nonetheless. The owner of the vineyard might have come by and saw a few figs and grudgingly, without comment, let both the fig tree and the gardener alone for another year. More digging, more manure, more sunlight and rain, and more loving care by the gardener. Also without comment, just love. And the next spring, there were a few more blossoms, more fruit, and still no comment from either man. The gardener dreamt about the fig tree at night, and the fruit in his dreams tasted sweet and gritty. By the third year, the tree was so full of fruit that he had to prop up the branches with sticks. He had plenty of sticks because the fig tree was in the middle of a vineyard, after all, and sticks were plentiful. And the man, the owner, by now, didn't mind because he loved figs and had forgotten all about his gardener's impertinence three years prior. I don't really know much about fig trees. By now, that fig tree is probably dead. But hey, it's a parable. And it's an expansive story, not a limiting one. So I imagine that offspring of that tree are scattered all around the world. Some are blooming. Some are bearing fruit. Prior to writing this sermon, my only real experience with figs were fig newtons. Maybe some of you have had similar experiences to me. I love fig newtons. Some of the best cookies. So not knowing much about figs and knowing that I had to write this Sermon, I went where we all go when we want to learn something. I went to the internet. Um, and here's what I found when I looked up figs. Some are brown, some are green, and some are such a deep purple that they're called black figs. Do you notice? Didn't notice? So in my internet stroll, I discovered 
that there, you know how when you look something up, there are always like the first four or five questions that people usually ask about the topic, in this case, figs. Um, so here are the questions that people asked, and the answers are mine. First, is there a wasp in every fig? I hope not. What are the benefits of eating figs? There are many. Joy being the primary one. What does a fig taste like? It tastes like heaven. If there's been enough manure. How many figs should I eat a day? As many as you can get away with. Also from my search, here are some of the foods besides Fig Newtons that you can make using figs. Honey fried figs. Honey roasted figs. Figs with pine nuts and goat curd. Fig jam. Fig curry. Fig tarts of various varieties. And the list goes on and on and on. So I just had this, I just have this feeling that it's, it's such a good thing that the gardener stood up for the life of a seemingly worthless tree. The gardener didn't only use his voice to stop the slaughter. He rolled up his sleeves, got his hands dirty <coughs> and smelly, and never gave up. He loved that fig tree into health. This is what I believe we are meant to do. We who would be gardeners in the kingdom of heaven. Because we're consistently told that people, places, and things that are unproductive have no right to take up space in this world. That the bottom line is the only line that matters. That the poor, the homeless, the sick, the widows and orphans of our time deserve our pity if we're feeling generous, our indifference if we're not paying attention, and our loathing if we only see them as a drain on society. We're told that this earth, our planet home, is only good as far as it can be mined, drilled, developed, plowed, and burned for our use and comfort. We are taught that animals exist for our use, which basically means for our exploitation. They're not human, and we are, so anything goes. And we're told by the bosses of this world to cut it all down if it's wasting our soil. And we can say, no, give us a chance. We can be gardeners. We can care for the earth and for one another. But it takes time and patience, and it's hard work. Sometimes it's dirty work and even unpleasant, and we are called to be gardeners 
to dig in the dirt. Is this what Jesus meant when he told this little story? It only takes up a few lines in the text, and it barely took a few breaths for him to tell it. Yet there it is, right in the middle of his teachings, in the middle of this pause in the action. So I think it must be a very important little story. Here's what I think. I think Jesus loved the man. I think Jesus loved the gardener. And I think he especially loved the fig tree because he loved the people. Of course, as I've said, it's a parable. And parables hold as many meanings and as much truth as a fig holds seeds. And a fig is seeds all the way through. I can't leave out the closing sentence, can I? After the gardener tells the man to let the tree alone for a year and let him tend to it, he says, if it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Not I will cut it down. You can cut it down. Now, do you think the vineyard owner is going to go out and get an axe and cut down that fig tree? I doubt it. He had a gardener, after all. And I think the wise and loving gardener doubts it, too. I think he would keep on tending that fig tree for a long time until both he and the tree grew old and gnarled together and eventually both returned to dust or maybe returned to loam mulch for the next generation of fig trees. Blessed is the owner of the vineyard, for he inherited a better, a better tree than he started with. Blessed is the gardener for the shovel and the love and the manure. Blessed is the fig tree and the blossoms and the sweet, gritty fruit. And blessed are you, gardeners of St. John's, in this season of Lent. Amen.